tonight on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, cooking with the Daleks. Enjoy the recipe that will exterminate your species. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. From the occasional tar pit leak suppression system in the Area 51 food court, it's once again clickbait for the years. It's TalkCast 388, this edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Tonight, with absolutely nothing whatsoever to say about the Infinity Wars, I'm your host, the guy whose air conditioning only works in the winter, Dome. Joining the TalkCast tonight, the rest of the gang, or at least some of it, in the Peabody Time Tunnel, sitting at the Sci-Fi Saturday Night help desk and gaming pavilion, it's our own taciturn technical trouble wrangler, Kriana. She was very loquacious earlier in the evening about <clears throat> her current gaming, but I guess not. And she's back in the Dank Dungeon's autonomic due date stamping service, found behind the covert entrance to the Jumbo Elliott and Barry external watch winding service at Cyborg University's Advanced Studies Library in Princeton, New South Wales. It's Zombrarian. <clears throat> so we got a new thing at the library. Yes, yes. Um, we're going to start checking out ukulele kits so that the kids can learn to play ukulele. Um, and I spent the day playing with one, and I've discovered a new talent. <laughs> which is flailing wildly at a ukulele with no um, respect for tuning it or, you know, making actual notes or music while singing wonderful songs, current events in the library as they happen. Um, so far, people's favorites include You Have to Pay Your Damn Fines If You Want to Check Out a Book. <laughs> it's 9 p.m. Get Out. I like that one. And the books in the fiction section are shelved by the author's last name. Do-da, do-da. Parentheses. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like you're developing a new talent. Yep. I, I cannot wait to hear you bring your, your borrowed ukulele onto the show. My, uh, my CD drops next week. Outstanding. Like, we should, we should give away a couple of... Yeah, from like the third story. <laughs> well, we only have two floors, so no. Well, if you toss it up, you can get a third story out of it. I, I can't throw. Okay. okay. Anyway, Java Java is going to be here tonight, but he's not. I have no idea what that means, but he's not here. So there will be no talk about superhero movies. There will be no talk about imploding the universe. And there will be no talk about Velcro. Those are all off limits tonight. 
um, he sent me an email, just told me he couldn't talk about Velcro. I don't know why. Our guest tonight is once again not wise enough when called to say you want to be on the show to say, ah, uh, uh, probably not. It's our old friend Dale Phillips. Dale, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> Dale was a was a, a late entry into the, into the show uh, because uh, of of stuff. And I called him up and I said, hey, what are you doing in 15 minutes? <laughs> and as usual, Dale said, yeah, I'll be on the show. And and thanks for being on the show, Dale. I really appreciate it. Are you calling me a media whore? I absolutely am not. I would never do that to you out loud. <laughs> Dale, Dale and I are old friends. We go back, oh, ooh, a long feet. time. Oh, yeah, at least. And... Um, Dale is is a writer who spans a number of genres, and uh, wanted to talk to him about a couple of things tonight, including some some new books and new work that he's got coming out. So, what's new in the world of Dale Phillips? Well, uh, hello everyone. <laughs> yeah, my tagline is "Scary Books and Murderous Crooks," so <laughs> I have uh, some of that coming out. I have. Uh, a narrator on ACX who has just finished the audio for uh, my latest book, a collection of short stories called The Last Crooked Paths. And that that will be going out uh, for vetting very soon and will probably be out in about a week on so, audio. So let's talk. Yeah, it, it, the book is already out, right? Oh, yes, yes. Available in print and ebook, all formats. And now, now you're releasing the book in audio. And when you do that, you kind of relinquish some of that creativity to to the uh, to the voice talent, don't you? Yes, but you actually get to be the director of the project. You tell them how you would like it slanted. Uh, you audition for narrators, and when you get one that sounds uh, has the right sound that you like. You get to give them hints on how you'd like things uh, especially done. And basically, you get to control and vet every every aspect of the project. And really? It doesn't go out until you're happy with it. That's a, that sounds like a good deal. It is fantastic. And it's no, <laughs> money, no money up front, which is the, be, the, the best boon for independent authors that there is. And that... that that's you know one of one of the banes of independent authors is that everybody everybody wants them to work uh, at their pace and at their at their level and their cost and and which is usually nothing right <laughs> and, uh, and meanwhile you guys are trying to make a living and and that kind of really stinks when when you're trying to make a living at your craft i mean you've got oh a, a ton of books out in a number of different genres from from science fiction to fantasy to to horror to uh, <clears throat> detective novels, which I'm into right now. Mm. Your detective novel, and you gave me uh, a copy of the. Uh, oh God, let me find the name of it. The okay. Memory of Grief. No. Oh yes, it was actually a Memory of Grief, and we were sit we were sitting in a little little restaurant. And on the way out, he said, I've got something I want you to read. It's called The Memory of Grief. And I read about half the book, and I called you up, and I went, this reminds me of about 10 other ones that I really like. 
And I really like this one too. Um, you talk about the Zach Taylor mysteries. Where where are we in the series? The, there's five books in the series right now. Yes. And are there more coming? Oh yes, there are many more stories which must be told. Uh, number six is being worked on, even at, well, not even as we speak, but soon after. It would be silly if you were working on it while you were on the show. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Actually, I kind of wouldn't. <laughs> uh, you are an industrious gentleman. So well, you're half right. Oh, uh, industrious. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so there are more books coming in the Zach Taylor Mysteries. And what else is coming out for you in the next couple of months besides oh. the, the audiobook? Well, so much. Um, I am working on a story for Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine in the Zach oh, Taylor nice. world. At the suggestion of a few uh, professional writer friends of mine who are like, oh, you need to you need to do this. Uh, I'm also working on a crime novel and I'm also working on a kind of a thriller novel with a little bit of science fiction aspects to it. And then there's some nonfiction and then there's a clutch of stories that also need to get out. <laughs> Speaking of collections of stories, you've got a couple of these uh all the Crooked Paths. I think you have two or three volumes of that. Yep, this is The Last Crooked Paths, which is coming out on audio soon, is the uh, third and last in the trilogy. And I collected them all into one giant collection as an ebook called All the Crooked Paths, which is Crooked Paths, More Crooked Paths, The Last Crooked Paths, all together. So and each, we were, each one has five stories in it? Five short stories, exactly, yep. Uh, some have been previously released in uh, magazines and online, and some are all original. So you have quite a mix and a collection in there. But everything is based in the crime and mystery world. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to 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 realize how many different forms and formats you're you're releasing your work in. Uh, an omnibus of short stories, uh, novels, audiobooks. Um, and as as I read through your stuff, which, gosh, I've been doing for years now, um, it's constantly something surprising me. Uh, for example, Jumble Sale. Yeah, Jumble Sale came about, uh, that was my first 20 published stories. And Each pub one published in a different area from different uh, publications and short story compilations on their own. Exactly. And a jumble sale, here we call them uh, a flea market, a garage sale, a yard sale in Britain and in the British Isles, they call it a jumble sale because it's just a jumble of all different things, uh, most of which have been previously owned, but now you can pick up treasures for a bargain and you never know what you're going to find when you start picking through. And that's why it's a jumble sale because it's such a a different collection of so many things from so many different areas. Do you ever go back and look at that stuff again? Uh, usually I'm moving <coughs> forward. So there's not time for the most part to go back over things that you've done. Okay. I guess that's fair. There's so much more that needs to be written and there's just not enough time. <laughs> I love, I love that, that, clawing sense of moving forward so much more i have to write yeah when when you're an independent and it's like 
you're never satisfied because like, oh, I could be doing something more right now. You always feel guilty about not moving forward, not accomplishing something, not getting enough done. Let's let's talk a little bit, if we can, uh, <clears throat> about where you spent your formative years in Maine. And uh, <laughs> that would be deformative years. Well, whatever. I mean, you know, I froze my ass off in Maine. Got it. Uh, yes. But you went to the University of Maine at Orono. Yes, I and did. Studied writing with uh, some guy uh, people may have heard of. You, you evidently took classes under Stephen King. Yes, he came back after having graduated from there. He came back as writer in residence for a year and uh, taught English composition classes, uh, taught poetry class, and I took as many things as I could and was able to have him actually work on my stories editing and tell me what I needed to do to make them stronger. And he was an excellent teacher, uh, giving us a love of the craft, telling us what we needed to do and how we could do it and to always persist and keep going. So years so, later, that's finally paying off. So so I guess from my point of view, that kills the next three questions, which began with, <laughs> so what was it like having him as a teacher? He is fantastic. I mean, he's he still, after all this time, still works constantly. If, if you want a model for being a writer, this is what you do. This is how you put out 75 to 100 books. You write every day, which he does. I still can't make that happen. But he is so dedicated to the craft and still has so many stories left in him after all this time that he still keeps putting them out. And it's still quality. It's, it's phenomenal. In between then and now, you've had uh, a number of interesting sideline jobs along the way. <laughs> you could uh, say that. Yeah. I could. I could. Uh, you were a mall Santa for a Christmas. Yes, yes, I was. Back, back at the time, I actually had to pat out Santa's tummy with a few pillows. Nowadays, I think I fit the role more easily. But yeah, then again, I don't think you want to go back to doing that anymore. <laughs> no, I, so, some kids would take one look at you and start screaming. And boy, did that give you a good feeling. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Nothing, nothing better to bring joy to the holidays than a child looking at you and screaming. And you were... Go ahead. No, I will tell you, I had a friend who played Mall Santa, and he was such a special person. He learned American Sign Language, and a, a, a deaf child came to the mall, and he signed to him, and the kid's face just broke out in such wonder, oh, and the wow. mother started crying. She said, that's the first time my child could ever talk to Santa and have him talk back, and it was just magical. I mean, that is the true meaning right there. Yeah, that, that kind of... That kind of puts the stamp on it's okay to be doing that stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. but you were also a lab experiment subject at one point? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, Harvard Harvard has a, uh, a uh, section devoted to uh, experiments, and they put out ads asking for people to come and volunteer, and they give them a few dollars for coming and taking part in experiments, uh, a lot of psychology and things like that. So... Um, you get to go over and find some really interesting stuff. This explains a lot. Oh, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> but I think one, one of the most interesting things uh, that I found out about you 
is that well not that you're an actor uh which which you've kind of always been as far as i'm concerned <laughs> finally that theater degree pays off but you actually have an imdb credit yes i do as throg the elder in the movie which i've actually seen some of throg yes soon to be a major motion picture cult <laughs> how did this come about my friend <laughs> well some of my main uh, cohorts uh, put together as a joke, they invented this character called Throg, who was kind of like this real dumbass barbarian who would always get things wrong, but it was a pompous ass and just had the, the worst luck in some areas and would yet survive somehow. They did a trailer, like about a three or four minute trailer you know, on film, and they showed this at uh, some, some event, and the audience went wild. And they looked at each other and said, oh, dear. Oh, we have something. And so over the next several years, they put together, cobbled together a script, started shooting uh, scene by scene, uh, put, stitched this together into a movie, edited it. And we actually showed this at the 2006 Boston International Film Festival and won Best Cinematography. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going up against films that have Academy Award winners in them, have budgets with many more zeros than ours, and they did that. And it's it's a fun little film, and it's actually out there now as an independent film. And so I insisted I get my IMDb credit so I can I can go. You know, you and I both go to uh, conventions. You know, uh, we do popular culture conventions, and I see people with credits that aren't as good as mine signing autographs and, and selling their movies and things and i was like you know we should do that and then i pictured myself kind of as alan rickman in galaxy quest wearing that stupid purple rubber hat signing autographs and with a look on your face like i was a shakespearean actor once okay well to, to be honest you were never a shakespearean actor i was actually but <laughs> I was third body in Julius Caesar. <laughs> Not everybody can say that. And I was a horse's aft. <laughs> yes, the back end of a two-person horse in Taming of the Shrew. There you go. Yes. Hey, it's showbiz. It is. It is. It's scary enough, but it is. <laughs> yes, luckily, I had an upbringing which was well before the days of social media. So thankfully... So much of what I've done is not recorded, and oh, wow, is that ever a blessing. <laughs> you know, you think I make stuff up, but you wouldn't even believe the stuff I can't sell people because it's, it's so much worse. Um, yeah, we're not going there, though. No, okay. no. No, no. We're absolutely not going there. One of the reasons uh, Dale is here with us tonight is because as we're recording, uh, the Kickstarter is beginning for my peculiar family to celebrations. Why don't uh, you tell us more about that? Well, what I was going to talk about was um, that you're the guy who talked me into doing the second book. Oh, I am? <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry. The book came out really, really well. Didn't mean to ruin your life. <laughs> it's, it's, been a, it's been a Sisyphean labor Sisyphus, uh, yeah. Sisyphean, yes. Sisyphean labor. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm showing off a word. Uh, <laughs> Words are good. Uh, 
Yeah, they are. They're not bad at all. And after the first book was finally published and out there, uh, you and I met for uh, a liquid lunch, as I recall. Yes. <laughs> and we talked about, you talked about wishing you had been in the first book. Why wouldn't I do a second one? <laughs> well, I, I am a, a person who says, if you have fun doing something, why not just do more of it? If, if you can create something really good, keep it up while it's still good. Well, so what, there you go. What about the, the whole concept behind my peculiar family? Made you think this was a good idea? <laughs> well, to me, I love uh, good writing prompts. Uh, because they they spark stories. I don't have the the stories just waiting to pop out. But when somebody makes a great suggestion for a start of a story, I go, oh, that's interesting, and that's what gets my mind whirling and starts out the sausage making machine. And I put in a bunch of different things and see what comes out. Now you had this this concept of finding a treasure trove of old photographs of a family and said, what if we wrote weird stories based on these photographs showing what these people were like and do it in a kind of a, a horror or just oddball sort of vein? I went, oh, I love that concept. And with the right photograph, you know, you could do something special. So you took out a bunch of photographs and the That's first right, one you I showed did. me. We spread them right over the table, didn't we? The absolute first one you showed me nailed me. Dead on, and I said, I'm taking that one. I have to have this one. I don't care. This is mine. I'm doing it. And I wrote a great story from it because I love that photograph and what it suggests. You wrote an incredible story for the anthology, and it was uh, actually, <clears throat> to be quite honest with you, and I, and I rarely ever do that to anyone, uh, that was one of the pictures I considered not using for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, um, I have a number, I have an archive, <clears throat> excuse me, I have an archive of pictures now uh, that I've collected over the past uh, eight or 10 years, um, uh, that kind of began this whole thing for me. And one of the kinds of pictures that always bothered me were the children. Yes. They were the creepy ones. Yes. And there were, there were some very, very, very creepy ones in the ones that we laid out. And on top of it, the one that you looked at, uh, which was uh, um, a small one. Now, <clears throat> what people don't know about tintypes is that most of them are three by four or three by five inches in size. And then they're, because they're made of, of tin, they're snipped into to fit into frames, but a number of them uh, were put into uh, small lockets. So the pictures themselves were about the size, a little bit smaller than postage stamps. And those didn't survive well. They were fairly, uh, because they were taken out of the, uh, out of the jewelry pieces and literally thrown in boxes. So I got a, a box of, of these tintypes, and in the bottom of it were about seven or eight of them postage stamp size. And the one which eventually became uh, Edna Penrod uh, was one of a child, and it was badly marred up and everything as well. So as, as I was 
blowing it up to a usable size for you, I realized, oh, this is creepy as hell. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the great thing about it is this is what makes writing and this is what makes art. Like, well, not to compare myself, but uh, when making the Statue of David, it was an imperfect piece of marble. People said, you can't do anything with that. And no, he proved them wrong. And he, and he chipped out and made the flaws part of the strengths. When I saw this picture, it has a huge black scratch on it on the photo, which makes it look like there's a noose coming off the subject's neck. Yeah, it does. Went, oh, my God. How good is that? When you take the photograph and you get this, quote, shadow image or this reflection, this is something that you have to work with. And you, you do not argue with the muse. You just go where you were led. And, and the different thing that we did with this particular uh, volume of My Peculiar Family, instead of putting an occupation, we put a, uh, a celebration or a, a uh, special day of some kind. And literally, uh, they were put into a randomizer so that I wouldn't have any control over what name ended up with what picture, ended up with what holiday. And when I sent it to you, I just kind of went, oh, he's going to love this one. Because the holiday was April Fool's. But that actually worked. See, that's the great thing about doing fun stuff is that that fit perfectly in with the subject, in with the story, and that made the story itself. As, I, I won't say it wrote itself, but it's just like with those guidelines, things fell into place so perfectly that those are the moments you live for as a writer or as an artist of any type when all the pieces interlock and they come together in an absolute perfection. And you're like, oh. That's just beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> yours was actually one of the first. Yours, yours was one of the first people I sent it to. Yours was one of, one of the first stories back, and yours was one of the few that needed little or no editing. So, whatever it was that got to you, uh, it, it it got to you very well. Well, that's the muse. And I, again, you know, you see, I don't take credit for that because when these ideas come, it's just you, you do them and you go, I don't even know if that was me. But man, that, that story was really good. The idea for that, the inspiration, what, whatever, you know, the, the ancients called it and whatever it comes from, it just was there for that story. And I just love those moments where that happens. It uh, It's an interesting volume, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a few moments. I can't wait to read the rest of the stories. It's more fun than humans should be allowed to have. Because I know a lot of oddball families, and well, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Now, before we talk about the Kickstarter and stuff, you are going to be at the Killer Nash Nashville, Nashua, the Killer Nashville Annual Writers Conference. God damn, if my lips could work, this might be a better podcast. <laughs> the Killer Nashville Annual Writers Conference on August 23rd of this year. Talk to us a little bit about what that's like and what's going to be happening there. Yes, well, I have found that as a writer, you 
uh, get such great exposure when you go to professional conferences and gatherings of other professionals and fans. Uh, locally here in New England, we have the annual Crime Bake, and I've been a part of that for a number of years and benefited to a great degree from that. I'm in the Sisters in Crime and the Mystery Writers of America, both organizations which, which help mystery writers and uh, foster learning and advancement in the field and career. It's a very generous community. And I started going to other conferences, such as BoucherCon, which is the Worldwide Mystery Conference. That's a good one. Now, I don't have a lot of funds limited, and Killer Nashville came up, and they said, we have a scholarship program. We will pay for the, the registration if you write an essay and tell us why you'd like to come. Nice. And I was like, well, I, I'll never make it. But again, writing is good practice. So I wrote them an essay, and about a very short time ago, a few days ago, I uh, got the notice, hey, You've been selected. You can actually come to this. You pay your your own lodging and uh, airfare, but we will pay for your conference. And it's a it'll be a great learning experience. Terrific panels and workshops. You're meeting agents. You're meeting editors. You're meeting other writers. You're getting a, a college level education within several days. So if you're going to be in the Nashville area at the end of August, you should go down. You should check it out. If you're a writer, you should definitely definitely be there. But what you should be looking at right now as you're listening to this is the Kickstarter for My Peculiar Family 2 and for the amazing low, low reward price of you can get uh, Volume 2 in both uh, digital and physical copy. Your name appears on the patron page of Volume 2 and you can get an audio download of either A Memory of Grief or Jumble Sale by Gail T. Phillips, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, reward. Yes, I think uh, A Memory of Grief is like uh, $21 or more as an audiobook, and you can get it for free if you support this terrific project. Plus, there's other fantastic offerings and rewards for becoming a member and helping out to make some good art uh, come to fruition. And get to talk and get to see the fruits and labors of some phenomenal writers, many of which you know, some of which you've never heard of, all of which are amazing. And if you go to the Kickstarter page, you can actually download the first story from the book, which is written by John Palisano, who is the vice president of the National Horror Writers Association. And had a story in volume one and you can get that all for free. So check it out. The link will be on the webpage and, and Dale, yeah. thanks for helping me out with book two. I really appreciate it. I really appreciated all the interesting stuff that you brought to the table. And, uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, look forward to the collection coming out, uh, sooner rather than later. <laughs> Kriana, can we hit the theme, please? Kriana? There we go. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official official podcast of Granite Con, Key Comic Con, Plastic City Comic Con, Books and Moment, you put the side by side again, you stand up.